going to be in 1 Peter chapter 5. We will not finish the book today. We'll be in verses 8 through 11. So we'll get you really close uh, to the end. But hopefully you'll have your Bibles open, your uh, notepads out, your journals out. I'd encourage you to take notes as you prepare for your small group gatherings uh, this week. I just want to update you and prepare you for where we're headed today. Last week, we looked at humility and the blessing of casting our anxieties on God. And we do that for one reason, because we know he cares for us. So we give him our anxieties because he know he lo- we, we know he loves us and cares about us and will meet our needs. This week, we look at Satan and his goal for our lives and the few of the schemes he uses against us. I think that's really fascinating. As Peter gets to the end of his letter, before his final salutations and final greetings, he reminds us of our enemy. Really interesting. Before we conclude this letter, I want to talk about Satan. Interesting. As I was preparing for this week and this sermon, a movie kept coming to my mind. I like movies, and a movie kept coming to my mind that I've seen an interesting story. I like war movies, especially World War II. For some reason, that era intrigues me quite a bit. And so maybe you'll remember this story. Uh, In World War II, when the United States got involved and wanted to supply help uh, to our allies, they would send transportations of people and vehicles and different things like that to Europe. And one of the difficulties that we faced as we supplied help was German U-boats. As we would send ships over, they would be destroyed or uh, damaged by these German U-boats that we could not see. And we were aware that they were communicating. We knew who the enemy was. We knew kind of what they were doing, but there was nothing we could do to intercept those messages to find out where the U-boats were stationed and what what they were uh, up to. And so some brilliant guy realized that they were using a form of technology called uh, the Omega, uh, uh, I forgot it now. Um, Luckily, I wrote it down. Enigma, man, I couldn't say that. I said it fine in the first service. The Enigma code, does this story sound familiar at all? So they realized there was this piece of equipment called the Enigma code machine. And if we were going to find out who our enemy was, what they were up to, the schemes that they were uh, working on, and how to better defend ourselves against them, we had to get the Enigma code machine. They would send a message through the Enigma code and receive it on another end, and that would tell them something that our ears couldn't understand. And so some generals and brilliant people figured out, we got to get one. And so we're going to attack a U-boat. We're going to take the machine and not let the Germans know we've taken the machine. So now as they converse and strategize and plan, we now know what they're up to. And that will be a huge defense against our enemy. Does that make sense? As you think about that story and that um, interesting back and forth, it is a great illustration of what I think Peter is teaching us in 1 Peter chapter 5. He is telling us that knowing our enemy is essential and understanding his schemes and his tactics is very important to living this walk, this Christian walk, and knowing how to live and honor God with our lives. 
And so that's where our text takes us today is this idea of knowing our enemy and his tactics. Let me show you our outline that we're gonna attack today, that we're gonna look at today, and then we'll read our passage. Here's what we're gonna see today. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses eight through 11, we're gonna see that we need to know our enemy's tactics. We need to resist the enemy's tactics. And then ultimately our greatest defense is to trust the king. Now let's read our text and hopefully you'll see those things as we walk through it. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses eight through 11 says this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last week, we talked about our anxieties and we were reminded that we should cast our anxieties upon him for he cares for you. And I just want you to know, uh, thank you for filling out those cards last week. It was a tremendous honor for me this week to read those and to see uh, just the, the obedience that we saw from you being willing to cast your anxieties on him. I wasn't encouraged by what you wrote on your cards because a lot of those were difficult and heavy and hard that you're facing. And my heart broke for you as I read those, but I was so encouraged the fact that you were willing to admit those and to cast those, to give them to God and to ask for prayer rather than try to carry them on your own. I was so encouraged. Thank you for doing that. But verses eight through 11 now are a caution. Our verses today are a caution to those of us who don't or won't cast our anxieties on him. It's a warning to those who prefer to carry, to handle our own, to take uh, the, the wheel of our lives, the control of our lives and handle them. Our text today will teach us that carrying our anxieties rather than casting our anxieties is actually a brilliant scheme of the devil himself. So let's start first of all by knowing our enemy's tactics. Let's see what First Peter teaches us about Satan. I find it very fascinating. If I were to give you a blank sheet of paper and say, on your paper, write Satan at the top and then write everything you know about him, this spirit being named Satan. Tell me everything you know about him. I think what I would find true is that you wouldn't be able to come up with much about him. Rather, what your sheet would be full of is his tactics and his schemes or what he does and what he's like. I think that's really interesting. And the reason I believe this is true is because the Bible teaches us what's of most important. And what the Bible teaches us is that knowing how Satan works is far more important than knowing facts about him. Who he is, this spirit being, is not the essential piece. What the essential piece is, is knowing what he's like and how he works so that we can defend ourselves against it. Even if we look at our verse, verse eight, look at it, put your eyes on verse eight in 1 Peter 5. 
you're told some things about Satan, but it's not about who he is. It's about what he's like. Three things. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This verse teaches us three things about Satan's tactics. The first is he's your adversary. Doesn't teach us much about who he is. Teaches us what he's like. Your adversary, he's not your friend. He's your enemy. It teaches us that Satan is not for you. He's against you. He opposes you. He does not want what's in your best interest. He wants to ruin you. He's your adversary. He wants to defeat you. The second thing this text teaches us is that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion. And then I think the interesting verb there is seeking. Roaring, uh, prowling around like a roaring lion seeking. Satan is prowling the earth, roaming the earth, looking for little zebras he can devour. And that's us. And he's very good at his game. He knows exactly what to do. He's sneaky. He's smart. The third thing we learn about Satan from our text is the word devour. This is his goal for your life. This is what he wants for you, to devour you. Literally means to swallow you or swallow you whole, to consume you, to destroy you. You know, Satan doesn't seem, I think this is interesting too. Satan doesn't seem to care about gaining followers, does he? Doesn't seem like he's trying to make a great name for himself. Rather, what he's trying to do is just destroy followers of God. He wants way more to destroy you than to convert you. He doesn't care about how many people are in the church of Satan this morning. He just wants this church empty. He wants those of us who claim to be followers of God to stop. That's success to Satan. His, his desire seems to be that God loses followers, that God's children would walk away. Have you seen that to be true in your life? Have you seen those that were once followers of God be devoured by Satan and no longer walk with him, no longer serve him, no longer obey him. That's Satan's game. And he's very good at it. As I was curious, what text you guys would go to? What do we know about Satan? Where can we find more about him? I think the, one of the simplest or most obvious is Genesis chapter three. I'd ask you right now to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter three, because I think it's such an interesting text that teaches us again, more of what Satan is like. Genesis chapter three is where we first encounter this spirit being named Satan. And again, we're not told a lot about him. We're taught a lot about what he does, his tactics, his schemes. Let me read it for you. It says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the free fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, garden neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Interesting text. If you were to read that passage, I think at the end of reading it, you would have way more questions about who Satan is than it answers. But it sure tells us a lot about what he's like, what he does, what he's up to. So let me give you three observations from Genesis chapter three about Satan's tactics. Because I think this is what First Peter chapter five is teaching us as well. So three ways Satan devours us or he destroys us. The first is Satan would love for you to doubt God's word or doubt God's law. He would love that. He'd love for you to doubt God's word or law. He says to Eve, did God really say? I just want to, for a moment, question God's word. What did he say? What was his command to you? And he gets Eve in this awkward situation where she's wondering and pondering God's command to her. What Satan's trying to do is get Eve to lower her view of God's law, question it, doubt it. Man, God's, God's rough, isn't he? God's mean. How dare he have those commands on you? Man, he's harsh. See, Satan would love for us to see God's commands as mere advice. I, uh, yeah, he did say that. That's a suggestion. It might be a good idea to stay away from that tree. I, I think it was advice. It's good advice that he gave you, but it's just mere advice. I think Satan would love for you to see God's commands as open to interpretation. You're right, Eve. He did say that. I think maybe this is what he meant. Like it, it was written thousands of years ago. Satan does this today. Yeah, it was written thousands of years ago. I think this is what it would mean today. Man, our culture's changed. The world we live in is different. You're right, he did say that. You did find a verse that says that. But hold on a second, culture. Let's define that by our culture. He loves that. He loves when we take what he says and twist it and change it to boil it down and soften it to mere advice or to see it as open to interpretation. Well, I don't think we really understand what he meant. I think Satan would also love for us to believe that God's command has no penalty if it's not obeyed. Do you see what she said? he said to Eve? You will not surely die. There's no consequences for sin. Yeah, it, it might be different than what God would prescribe, but so what? You'll move on. You'll live another day. You'll be fine. You won't surely die. Ah, God, he's just, he's just, you know, he, he sets a high bar, but don't worry about it. Nothing will happen if you disobey. Satan does those three things still continually today. He wants you to lower your view of God's word, or he would love it if you just didn't know it, right? And doesn't Eve prove that a little bit? She just didn't know God's word like she should have. She misinterprets it. She gets it wrong. I can't even touch the tree. God's harsh. He does that today. Just put your Bibles away. You don't need your Bibles. Don't look. Don't look at that. It'll be fine. Let me tell you what it says. 
The second thing Satan devours us is he wants you to doubt God's goodness. So he wants you to doubt his law and his word, but he also wants you to doubt his goodness. This is what he does with Eve too. You will not surely die. No, actually what will happen, Eve, is your eyes will be opened. You'll become wise. God's not good, Eve. He's keeping good things from you. That's a bad God. He's, he's, he's holding back blessings from you. He could lavish these things on you, a delicious fruit, your eyes will be open, wisdom, but since he's bad, he's withholding these blessings from you. Satan wants you to believe that God is keeping good things from you rather than protecting you from bad things. Does the same thing today. Let me give you a line from, I think is Satan's playbook. This is the line Satan, I think, runs too often. Satan would say this to you in your ear. Don't cast your anxieties upon him. He doesn't care about you. Can you hear that? Have you thought that? I have. I better carry my anxieties. I'm not sure he cares. Or at least I care more about my anxieties than God does, so I better hold on to them. That's a whisper from Satan that he makes you think you care more about yourself than God does. He's not worth trusting. The third way Satan devours us from Genesis chapter three is Satan wants you to satisfy your desires outside of God's plan. We all have these desires, we all have wants, and he says, here's how you can be happy. Here's how you can be satisfied. It, it is outside of God's will, but it'll be, you'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. You don't have to listen to God's plan. He says to Eve, uh, when Eve saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes to make one wise, she wanted it, right? And what did Satan say to her? Take it, take what you want, be happy, be satisfied. Your desires are of most important. What will make you happy, that's of highest priority, Eve. Take the fruit, you'll finally be happy. Eve, you are the source of your own happiness, not God. Satan says the same to us. Hey, be happy. Do whatever it takes to be happy, even if it's outside the will of God. That's okay, because your happiness is the most important. Church, Satan is smart. Satan is clever. And he has been deceiving humans for a long, long time. He knows all he has to do is to get you to doubt God and get you to play the role of God in your own life. Yeah, cranky old man, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You go be happy. You know how to make yourself happy. Don't listen to that old book. It's out of date. He's not for you. He's against you. All whispers from Satan. Let me just for a moment, before we go back to 1 Peter, let me just expound on this topic for, a, for just a moment. You see, not only should we know Satan's tactics, but we need to know our vulnerabilities. It's good for us to know our enemy, but it's really good for us to know our own weaknesses as well. Um, this comes from a verse uh, that in 1 John chapter 2, I wanna read it for you. It says this, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life. It is not from the Father, but it is from the world. You see, you could take every sin imaginable, 
You can name every sin imaginable and pretty much boil it down to three main areas of vulnerability. And every single one of you in this room, we lean towards one of these vulnerabilities. So sometime this week, I'd love, uh, please write these down, jot these down. I didn't invent these. I'm not that smart, but I want you to write these down and think about them. Sometime this week, take a moment of just self-reflection and be willing to identify, yeah, that's my area. Man, that's where I'm weak. That's where Satan attacks me. Man, he goes after me with that one so often. For those of you that are married, I bet you your spouse knows your area of vulnerability better than you do because we're really good at twisting our weaknesses or framing our weaknesses. And be like, no, that's actually a strength. Your spouse will say, no, it's not. That's actually a weakness and you struggle with that regularly. So have some vulnerability and some transparency with your spouse and say, hey, help me. Help me protect myself from Satan's attacks. They will. And then for those of you that are in a small group, if you, I know your small group's only been meeting for a couple months now, but I'd love for you to have some transparency and some vulnerability. Share this with your small group and let them help you grow. Let them be, come be soldiers around you and help you, protect you. Share these in your small group. Let me run through these real quick. Three areas that all sins, categories that sins kind of fall into. The first is this. I crave power and control. This would be where 1 John describes it as the lust of the eyes. This is how you know you fall into the first category. If you say this a lot, I must have. Many of you in your room probably fall into this category. I'm the type of person that just, I must have that thing. Remember Eve saw it and she needed it. Man, it looks beautiful. I need that. I must have. In order to, for me to be happy, I must have. I must have power or control. Maybe it's a position at work. Like I'm not satisfied in my current rank. I need that next rank for me to be happy. I must have that, or I must have that thing, or I must have in order to be happy. That's the individual that struggles with the, the craving for power and control, the lust of the eyes. Maybe you fall into the second category. It's I crave pleasure, happiness. John calls this the lust of the flesh. This is how you know you fall into this category. If you say this often, I must feel. I, gotta, I, I need that feeling in order to be happy. I, I'm happy when I feel this way. That thing makes me feel good. I just need that thing because it helps me feel better. That's the individual that has this craving for pleasure and happiness. And many of us probably fall into that category. I know it's wrong, but it makes me feel good. And isn't that most important? Satan loves to attack that. The third one, I crave approval and credit. John calls this the pride of life. This is the individual who says this often. I must be. I must be. I must be the best preacher. I've got to strive to be the best. Or I've got to be the best in my hobby, I've got to be the best. I need people's approval. I need people to tell me, good job, attaboy, well done. I need that. It makes me feel so good when I get the approval. And I'm devastated when people criticize me. And you might be that third category. I crave approval credit. I'll do anything for people's approval, anything. I just need those pats on the back. 
You see, those three, all sins can be boiled down to those three categories. My question for you is, which is your greatest area of vulnerability? Satan's smart. Satan's clever. He loves to attack these three things and he can observe. And he knows exactly where to put that finger. Just put that in your wound, open wound, and knows your vulnerability and he loves to attack it. So sometime this week, today, just wrestle with that. Be willing to claim and ask God for help in that area of vulnerability. So the first thing we had to know is we had to know our enemy's tactics. The second thing, flip back to 1 Peter chapter 5 now, I want to look at is how do we resist? Look at verse 9. Verse 9 of 1 Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So the second thing we're taught to is to resist the enemy's tactics. So what does it look like to resist? Let me review just for a second. Last week, Pastor Todd told you one way to resist. He told you to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. One way we resist Satan is by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God, knowing that it's his rule and his reign in our life. Submit under his will, under his authority. Verse eight tells us another way we can resist. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. I like to interpret it this way. Use your brain and use your eyes. Don't be that silly zebra with its head in the water, completely oblivious. It'd be like the zebra who thinks he's at the zoo, but really he's in the wild. And there's a lion ready to pounce. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Be aware that there's a roaring lion seeking to devour you. Be watchful. The third thing we learn how to resist the enemy's tactics found in verse nine, firm in your faith. Great way to resist the devil is to be firm in your faith or say it this way, know God. Know God, know his heart and know his will. It's the big word theology have really good theology. Sometimes you hear people say like, ah, theology, that's for nerds or word geeks or theology is your defense against the devil. Satan knows God pretty well. He's able to twist into into nuance and to change and to attack your theology. He knows where you're weak and he's able to sneak in. He did that exact same thing with Eve. She was pretty darn close but her theology was a little bit off and and Satan was able to wiggle in there and just challenge it. We need to be students of the Bible, students of God. We need to know his word and his law. Know your Bible, study theology, love the character of God, desire to know him better and more. See, Eve proved she didn't know God's law or God's heart. She misrepresented God's law. He said we couldn't even touch it. He did? We're not told he said that to her. She didn't know her God's law like she thought she did. And she thought wisdom would come from the fruit. She saw that it, was, it would bring, make one wise. What does the word of God teach us? Where does wisdom come from? The Father. Wisdom comes from God from his law. She misunderstood God's blessings and where they come from. Firm in your faith. Your greatest defense against Satan is to know God well, 
So when it doesn't sound like God, you know it's Satan. Like, wait, 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 wait. That doesn't make sense. We would say it this way. That's bad theology. What you're able to say is that sounds like Satan. It doesn't sound like God. I know God's voice pretty well. And the last, the fourth way to resist the enemy's tactics, look at verse nine again. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Really interesting that he goes back to suffering. Peter loves to talk about suffering. It's a main theme throughout the book. So why does he talk about suffering here? I think what we need to know, a way to resist Satan, is to understand suffering. Because if we don't understand suffering, suffering can cause us to doubt God's goodness. Like, wow, my life's hard. It's difficult. Maybe God's not good. So we need to understand suffering, understand its purpose. Satan loves to use suffering to get us to doubt God and to take control of our lives. But we know throughout First uh, Peter and James and lots of other texts that God uses suffering in our lives to make us more like his son. Suffering's not evil. When suffering comes into your life, it doesn't mean God has abandoned you. It means he's probably sanctifying you, changing you, making you more like his son. Church, this world is filled with pain and suffering. Don't let your earthly experiences make you doubt God's goodness. Instead, let them make you long for eternity with him. I can't take away your sufferings. I can't promise you sufferings won't come, but I can promise you this, they'll make you long for eternity. They'll make you dependent upon God. And I think that's a really good thing. Here's the problem. Remember the story of Job? No one suffered like Job. Job is the epitome of suffering. And Job's wife gave him really bad advice in Job chapter two, verse nine. And I'm convinced her voice in that moment sounded a lot like Satan's voice. Let me read it to you. It goes this way. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Here's, here's, here's Job's wife's theology. Your life is really hard, Job. There's a lot of suffering and difficulty. Man, God must not be good to you, Job. Just, just tell him to go away. Tell God goodbye. If this is your God who would allow suffering and difficulty on you, just tell him goodbye. You don't need him. It'd be better off if you were dead, Job. Like, and I think Job's wife's voice sounds a lot like Satan's voice in that moment. And I think so many times we hear the same thing. Man, my life is so hard. It's so difficult. God must be bad. Yet the word of God teaches us the very opposite. He's there for us. He loves us. He uses suffering for our good. Suffering is not your greatest problem. Suffering is not my greatest problem. Sin is my greatest problem. That's my greatest struggle. That's my greatest difficulty is my sin. And many of, many of us would rather sin than suffer. 
And Satan knows this and loves to use this to get us to sin or to get us to doubt God's goodness. Isn't it easier to just say yes to temptation? When you're tempted, when you're given an opportunity to sin, you think, if I say no to sin right now, that'll be hard, that'll be difficult, that'll be stressful. It's easier to just say yes, isn't it? Just easier. So I would rather sin than suffer. That's a lot of times how you think, that's a lot of times how I think. And Satan loves that. So we've got to resist. We've got to humble ourselves. We've got to be watchful. We've got to, man, we've got to know God's word. We've got to understand suffering. Those are ways that we resist Satan. And lastly, trust the king. He boils it down as he gets to verses 10 and 11. Peter's gonna summarize for us the victory, where victory comes from. And he's gonna teach us to trust the king. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace. That's the victory. That's where victory comes from. Knowing the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Trust the king. Peter here reminds us of what heaven will be like compared to this earth. This earth does have some suffering, church. It says for a little while, after you have suffered a little while, you will suffer, but heaven is eternal. The comparison in verse 10 is amazing. After you suffered a little while, who has called you to his eternal glory. God's plan for your life is far greater than momentary comfort on earth. He loves you way more than just to give you momentary comfort on earth. He has an eternal plan for you. You see, Satan pretends to be for you by offering you momentary comfort, but God is truly for you and has an eternal plan for your life. Let's just take a few moments right now to compare what we've learned of God's plan for your life compared to what Satan's plan for your life is. Real quick, just a summary. Satan's desire is to devour you. Verse eight, God's goal is to exalt you. Verse six, last week we were like, what does that word exalt mean? God's gonna make much of us? If you wanna understand exalt more, read verse 10. That list in verse 10 is what exalt means, to restore confirm, strengthen, and establish. I think those are four great descriptions of that word exalt. Satan's desire to devour. God's goal for your life is to lift you up, to carry you, to meet your needs. Satan will offer you momentary pleasure. He will. Sin's pleasurable for a moment. He'll offer you that momentary pleasure but God offers you eternal joy. God has joy as part of his plan for all of eternity. So why would we throw it all away for momentary pleasure? You ever had a friend that's failed, had a, had a moment of failure and you ask this question? Why would he be willing to throw it all away? I don't understand. Like he had a great marriage. 
And in a moment of weakness, he was willing to throw away his marriage. He had a great family, great reputation with his kids, and he was willing to throw it all away for something stupid, this momentary weakness. Or man, he had a great career. He had a great, he had so many things going for him and he was willing to throw it all away. Why? Because he listened to the voice of Satan. Satan said, come on, buddy. Don't you wanna be happy? I offer you happiness. And he said, yes. And he didn't consider the consequences. God won't offer us that momentary pleasure. He'll offer us eternal joy. That's his plan for your life. And then lastly, Satan wants you to be the king of your life. God knows he is a way better king for your life. Satan offers you the throne of your life. He offers you the keys. Here you go, be in charge. Won't you make a great king? You would make a great king. You would do an awesome job. Imagine if you were in charge. How much fun would it be if you were in charge? You know what God says? You'd be a terrible king. Let me be king. I'm a way better king than you are. Life will go so much better if if I'm king. Please believe me. You and I would make terrible kings over our lives. Most days, I'm not even a very good dad or husband. Yet I think I'd be a good king over my life? No, I need a king. I need somebody to protect me from evil and to point me towards goodness. And I need someone to follow I don't need to be king of my life. I need a king. Church, let me just summarize it for you. We'll conclude it today. Church, your greatest armor against Satan is strong faith in God. You wanna fight Satan's temptations? Know God well. Love God well. Know his commands. Know his promises. Know what he sounds like. Faith in God is your greatest defense against Satan. So when he speaks to you, you can say, that doesn't sound like God. That's contrary to his promises. That's bad theology. Sounds a lot like Satan. You see, Adam and Eve's failure in the garden was due to their lack of faith in God, wasn't it? Eve had a moment of weakness where her faith wasn't strong enough in God, and so she failed. Same with Adam. And I'm pretty confident the greatest sinful failures in your life can be pointed back to a lack of faith in the goodness and love of your king. You have any regrets? You have any big moments of failure in your past? I'm almost certain you could point back to that moment and say, you know why I failed? I wasn't strong spiritually. I struggled in my faith in that moment. And you know what was, what was happening when you were weak in your faith? There's a prowling lion watching, stupid little zebra, and he pounced. It's what he does. Your greatest defense against Satan is strong faith in God. The spiritual battle in your heart and your mind going on right now can be summed up this way. There's only two types of people in the world, church. You ready? There's only two types of people in the world. The first is this, and I hope this is you. God cares for me, therefore I will live for him. That's it. That's the first type. Here's the second type. God doesn't care for me, therefore I will live for myself. That's it. 
two type of people in the world, and you know them. One of them's you, and one of them's your neighbor. God cares so much for me, of course I will live for him. Well, God doesn't care for me, therefore I'll live for myself. You know which one Satan sounds like, and you know which one the Father sounds like. So where are you today, church? I hope, I hope you're here. Can I show you my take-home truth? My prayer for you this week will be this. Let me read it for you. And just, I pray that your feet are here, that you're standing here today. While I wait for God's eternal glory to be revealed, that could be suffering. While I wait for God's eternal glory to be revealed, I will trust God's plan, purpose, and character rather than be lured away by Satan's schemes. Hope you're there today. And if this is not where you are today, we should pray towards that end.